Araminta Ross was born as a slave in 1820 on a plantation in the state of Maryland. Her parents taught her Bible stories and gospel songs and spirituals, but because she was a slave, she was not allowed to gather in assemblies like at a church gathering. She was treated harshly on the plantation because of what she was told was her stubborn spirit and forced to work in the fields. By the age of 11, she started being called by her mom's given name, Harriet. She married at the age of 24. Then, at the age of 29, Harriet made another major life transition. You see, all of her life, she was longing for liberation. She was longing to be free from the unjust bondage of slavery. Her very soul groaned for freedom. A suffering so horrific that 200 years later, we can only try, attempt to imagine the groaning of her heart. At 29 years old, Harriet Tubman used the Underground Railway to make her way to Pennsylvania, where she found freedom that she had so long anticipated. Anticipation can be exciting, but anticipation can also be excruciating. And that principle is what Paul wants us to understand about the Christian life. We wait with excitement, but we also wait through suffering. Would you please find the book of Romans in your copy of the scriptures? If you're not familiar with the Christian Bible, Romans is the second half of the Bible. It's called the New Testament. Chapter 8 can be found on page 796 of the Pew Bible copy. The first half of the Bible is the Old Testament. It records events that happened before Christ came to the earth. The Old Testament anticipates the coming of Jesus. The second half of the Bible is the New Testament, and it records the events of Christ's earthly life, that he, that he was born, that he became a, a man, his incarnation. It records his, his life, it records his death, it records his resurrection. The New Testament also provides instruction to Christians on how we are to live until Christ comes again, because he is going to return and come to the earth again. Romans is a book that gives Christians both theology and instruction. Romans is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church that was located in Rome. And Paul uses this epistle or this letter to, to unveil the undeserved, the unmatched, the unstoppable gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, God's Son. And we're in the section that deals with, with gospel assurance. So we're there in Romans chapter, we're working through Romans chapter 5 through chapter 8 right now. And we're, we've, we've come all the way through to chapter 8. And, and we know that because we have been justified by faith, he told us at the beginning of chapter 5, we have peace with God. We who are children of wrath, because of our sin, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We don't have to be worried we don't have to be anxious about being God's child. He is holding us fast. That's good news for the Christian. 
Our security is not dependent on, on how well we keep God's law. Our security is, is dependent on how well Christ kept God's law on our behalf, in our stead. As we've already heard this morning, there is no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ. Because we are children of God. Heirs of God. And if heirs, we're then joint heirs with Christ. Everything that God has given to Jesus, everything that Jesus receives because He is the Son of God, we receive because we are children of God, joint heirs with Christ. Friend, if you don't have the assurance that comes with being a child of God, I encourage you to listen carefully today to the gospel of Jesus. Would you all please follow along as I begin reading at Roman, in Romans chapter 8. I'll begin reading at the beginning of the chapter. There is therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ, in, in Jesus Christ, hath made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can it be. So then, they that are in the flesh cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is not of Christ. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he that raised Christ from the dead shall also quicken or make alive your mortal bodies by his Spirit that dwells in you. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live after the flesh. For if you live after the flesh, you will die. But if through the Spirit you do mortify the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For you have not received the spirit of bondage, again to fear, but you have received the spirit of, of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. For I reckon, or I consider, that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory which shall be revealed to us. For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but because of him who hath subjected the same in hope. Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and travails in pain together until now. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, 
even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption, to wit, the redemption of our body. For we are saved by hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man sees, why doth he yet hope for? But if we hope for that we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. Today's text is verses 19 through 25. Our text explains to us that one of the assurances that we have of our standing with God comes through groaning. The longing of our hearts for things to be fixed, corrected, made right or made new is a longing that testifies to the promise that God is going to do just that. The groaning that Christians experience in this life comes before the glory that Christians will experience in the next life. In other words, waiting is both exciting and excruciating. The groans of this world are naturally part of anticipating the glory of a future day. So Christian, keep reminding yourself that groaning precedes glory. It was true for Jesus, and it is true for you. Paul points out three sources of groaning, or three ways in which we see this groaning. Creation is groaning, Christians are groaning, and then in verses 26 and 27 we read of the Holy Spirit who is groaning. Lord willing, we will consider the Holy Spirit's groanings next Lord's Day. Today we will consider the groaning of the creation and of Christians. So we begin by thinking about the groans of creation that precede promised glory. What is the source of the creation's groaning? Why would creation groan? Creation groans because God has cursed creation. Creation has fallen under a curse from God himself. When, when God took six literal days to speak everything into existence, as we read of in Genesis, he concluded by looking around and declaring that everything that he had done, everything that he had made, was very, what? Good. God looked at it all and he said, this is very good. God didn't create something bad. God created something good. It was good because it reflected his character. It was good because it was perfect in beauty. It was good because it was lovely to experience as Adam and Eve could testify. It was, it was good because it was preserved for continual joy. It was filled with life, not death. It was, it, it was filled with life, plant life and animal life and human life. Creation was God's masterful work on display. We read in Genesis chapter 1, verse 29, God said, Behold, he talks to, to humans, he says, I've given you every herb bearing seed which is upon the face of all the earth and every tree in which is the fruit of a tree yielding seed. To you it shall be for meat. God blessed the human race with this, this beautiful creation. But then the human race messed up. We sinned. We directly disobeyed God's instruction when we ate of the fruits in the Garden of Eden that we were told not to eat of. This is when God pronounced a curse upon the creation. In chapter 3, we, we read, And God said unto Adam, 
because you have hearkened unto the voice of thy wife and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In sorrow thou shalt eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee. And thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread. Till thou, till thou return to the ground, for out of it thou wast taken. For dust thou art, and unto dust thou shalt return. The source of creation's groaning goes back to the curse that God has placed on creation because of man's sin. Paul refers to the creation of the curse and the creation's groaning with a couple of different phrases. He talks about it being subjected to futility, about its bondage to corruption, and to the pains of childbirth. That's what the curse looks like, feels like. Sproul says that that word futility is one of the ugliest words in the English language. Nothing can drive the human being to despair more quickly or deeply than the idea that our pain and labor are, are mere exercises in futility and utterly meaningless. We can understand that, can't we? Paul tells us the whole creation has been groaning. He makes the comparison to the pains of childbirth. I'd like to explain to you the pains of childbirth. Just kidding. Woman back there threw, almost threw a hymnal at me. It's universally understood that the pains of childbirth are excruciating. Paul appropriately draws our attention to a common yet agonizing experience. Yet even in this, in this illustration, we see that the suffering is to conclude with, with a new life, the new life of a baby. The earth groans because it desperately wants to be delivered. Beloved of Harvest Bible Church, some of the reason that we have such discouraging days as Christians is that we have unrealistic expectations. Friends, the world is not becoming a better place. It's not currently evolving into a better situation. It's getting worse. Do you feel the ongoing futility of life in a fallen world? You know what I'm talking about. Things don't work right. Stuff doesn't happen like you plan it to happen. Frustration is always lurking. Some of you love iOS and think that the iPhone operating system works well. But let me tell you about the WOS, the world operating system. It stinks. It doesn't work well. It doesn't work properly. Death and decay are all around us. People die. Things die. Dreams die. Relationships die. Physical creation dies. Suffering is all around us. Famine. It's not around us close, but it's in our world. Poverty. Sex trafficking. Hurt feelings. Pandemics. Frustrations with others about their responses to pandemics. Political systems natural resources, it's all dying. Do you feel that the world is broken, Christian? Are you regularly reminded of the curse that the world is under? Martin Lloyd-Jones provides helpful clarification with this illustration. Every year, 
Creation makes an effort to renew itself out of the death and darkness that is so true to winter. I read that with great emphasis this morning. Spring seems to be trying to produce a perfect creation. Birth pangs, if you will. But it does not succeed. For spring leads only to summer. Summer to autumn. And autumn to another winter. It's the curse, the source of creation's groaning. But Paul goes on in verses 19, 20, and 21, and he explains to us that there's actually a hope for the creation's groaning. The longing of creation is to be set free from the bondage and the corruption that it now experiences. Set free from its bondage to death or bondage to corruption. Freedom, as Paul uh, quotes it this way or says it this way, freedom of the glory of the children of God. You see, creation's curse is inseparably linked to humanity's plight and destiny. Do you understand that? When sin happened back in the, in the Garden of Eden, when we as a human race sinned, creation was likewise corrupted. We've read of that. And when man's glory is restored one day at Christ's return, and when we are in heaven and we are glorified, so is creation's glory. And that is precisely why, as verse 19 says, the creation is waiting for the revealing of the sons of God. That's when, verse 21, as it says, the creation will be free from its bondage. Creation's curse and restoration is inseparably linked to humanity's curse and restoration. Creation is, is craning its neck, if you will, waiting for the children of God to be glorified. Creation's hope is that one day Christians will be eternally separated from sin and separated from our humanity and, and liberated from the flesh. That's the hope for creation in its groaning. So remember the context of this teaching is the believer's assurance. Christians, we are assured of our standing with God through the evidence of creation waiting for the promise of glorification for Christians. The groans of this world are naturally parts of anticipating the glory of a future day. So keep reminding yourself that groaning precedes glory. It was true for Jesus, and it's true for you. The groans of creation point to a promised glory. But creation is not the only thing that is groaning, as we've read through this passage. Christians also groan. So Paul goes on to teach us that the groans of Christians precede promised glory. Paul wants to be clear with us. Paul wants to make, to make sure that we understand that there's no doubt about it. Every true believer agonizes as a result of sin. It may manifest, manifest itself in, in different ways. It could be in my personal choices to sin, and so I uh, endure or I face suffering. It could be in disease or in the natural world. But regardless, every Christian will experience suffering. Paul refers to us as the ones who have the first fruits of the Spirit, us children of God. We are the first batch of a harvest. Christian, there will be suffering for you in this life. I read this week a, a small book called When Pain is Real and God Seems Silent. It's uh, two sermons by Ligon Duncan on Psalm 88 and Psalm 89. 
This is, will be a great help to you if that's how you feel, that you're in pain, in re, it's real pain, and God seems silent to you. There will be suffering for you in this life. What is the nature of our suffering? Paul tells us in verse 23 and, and, and that, that, that suffering is, is that, we, that we experience will, be, will happen inwardly. The Spirit of God is, is gradually making us more like Jesus. We understand that. But that's just a sampling of what is yet to come. When we see any of the fruits of the Spirit, when we, when we see a, a degree of love in our life, or joy, or peace, when we see some patience or some, some kindness taking place in our life, some goodness, some faithfulness, some gentleness, or some self-control, when we see that happening in our life, we get a little bit of, of hope, and we think, yes, I want that to be, I want that to be fully beaming through my body. I want that to be fully beaming through my life. But that full freedom from sin and death in our bodies is yet to come in the future. Do you feel the, the internal pull, Christian? That longing for another place. When you experience a degree of God's work in you, does it make you desire the, the unleashed, unlimited of glory in you? Right now, maybe we feel it most when we mess up. We groan over our disobedience to God. And we long for a day when we will never sin again. We feel that pull internally. We long to not fail God in our sin. But Paul says we wait for it. Uh, we, we, we experience that groaning not only inwardly but also eagerly. We feel that, that, that groan, that longing for another place, that longing for God's work through us without the stain of sin remaining in us. We long for that eagerly, don't we? Have you ever waited for something eagerly? I can remember, uh, I, I grew up outside of Washington, D.C., so I can remember taking field trips. We would easily get, get back into the city and, and go see a museum or a historical site or whatever. And I remember one field trip, we, we stopped by. I don't know why we were in the city we were doing something. We heard that the president was going to make a speech. So we stopped by the White House back in the day when you could do that. And uh, we stood. We were far away um, from him, but we could see him come out. And I forget what part of the, the grounds he was, he was on. And I don't remember which president it was. You young people were probably thinking it was like right after Washington. But it was way beyond that. And I remember, I remember thinking, oh, yeah. I was standing on my tiptoes. I was trying to see over the people around in front of me, I was trying to see him, the president, come out of the come out of the, 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 the building, come out of the White House, and make his way to the podium. We were standing there eagerly waiting for what was about to happen. As Christians, we wait eagerly for the promised glory. But waiting can not only be exciting, it can be excruciating, can't it? What is currently for you right now, today. What is currently causing you to groan inwardly and eagerly for full redemption, to be glorified for that future day? Are you mourning the loss of a loved one? Do you have grief over personal sin and you're groaning over it? Is disease causing you just to long for another place be fully healed. The wearing down of your physical or mental capacity? Is it strife 
in family relationships that has caused you to groan, to long for another spot? Is it fear over national or international situations? Maybe it's just apathy regarding your walk with God. What is causing you to groan inside? Why are you standing on your tiptoes, as it were, looking for, for something else, looking towards something else? Paul gives to us not just the nature of the Christian's groaning, but he also explains to us the future of a Christian's groaning. And he explains, he, he, he terms it as, as being adopted as sons and, and tells us about redeemed bodies. We already are God's children. He covered that in previous verses. But we're not yet complete. We're not yet glorified. Our sonship will be final one day in the future. Somebody put it this way. Our sonship, our adoption, our being the children of God is actually proved in our troubles. Paul told us in Ephesians that we were at one time children of wrath. Ephesians chapter 2. Do you ever... Are you ever tempted to, to feel like you still are a child of wrath because of your sinful choices? That's why we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly. We want to, be, to have that final adoption of sons. We want to experience the full impact of being God's child. Brothers and sisters, that full impact is coming. And, and Paul not only tells us the future is that that full adoption, that final adoption will, be, will take place, but he also says there will be a redemption of our bodies. We groan because of the misery of living in our fallen bodies. We still live in unredeemed bodies that can be used for sin, that, to, that hurt us and grieve our Lord. Think about how, how that happens all the time. Our world's confusion on sexuality is, is regularly manifested through the human body. Males are futilely attempting to be female, and females are futilely attempting to be males, and males and females are attempting to be neither. But it's not only our sexuality that we recognize our unredeemed bodies. We understand that our bodies are breaking down. Our hearts and our hips wear out. Our eyes and our minds weaken. Our energy and stamina, stamina lessen. But it's not just our physical bodies that Paul is talking about. It's all of our humanness that Paul speaks of. In other words, we currently are being held captive by a human body. And that body wears down, and that body feels the curse of sin with temptation. And we are kept in bondage by this, this mortal body while we are on earth. And that's precisely why we long for the redemption of our bodies, to be finally and fully set free from sin. One day, we will have a resurrected body that is sinless, righteous, immortal. That day, there will be no more fighting the same-sex attraction temptations. No more loving food more than loving God. No more failing to use our time wisely. No more pursuing the possessions of this world. No more falling short of God's glory as a result of being trapped in, a, in this body. And that's what we're longing for. That's why we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly. We want the redemption of our bodies. So how does this happen as we wait? Because we're still waiting. Paul kind of finishes off this section by giving us the mindset of a Christian's groaning. It's hopeful. He says our, our salvation is, is still a hope for us right now because it's not yet a reality. Now, 
we, we're still waiting for the full salvation, right? But it's, it's not a hope that, oh, maybe it's going to happen. It's set in stone. It's, it's, it's going to happen. A Christian's hope is, is not a probability. A Christian's hope is a certainty. If you are in Christ, you will experience full and final rescue from the curse of sin through and through. Hope was initiated when we were justified, but before that, we, we didn't have that redemption, so we didn't hope for it. During our earthly journey, when we inevitably knock against the curse of this creation, or when we feel like our, all of our suffering is futile, pointless, we are to remind ourselves that God, of God's promise for the future, of God's promise for tomorrow. Friend, your groaning is real. Your suffering is legitimate. Your aches are hurtful. Your longing is genuine. And that is why you can face it. That is why you can hope. Because truly, the best is yet to come. But Paul says, not only do we, do we walk this journey, and not only do we have these, these groanings in hope, but we also do so with patience. Now, if we are being honest with ourselves this morning, nobody in here wants to hear me say the word patient in a sermon. We're not very good at that, are we? We wait for our full adoption. We wait for the redemption of our bodies with patience. In other words, we're called to endure, not with our arms crossed and with a roll of the eyes. We are called to endure, not with frustration with God and distrust in his plan. Rather, we are called to wait for the redemption of our bodies and, and the adoption of sons with patience. Brothers and sisters, let us pray for one another in the wait. Let us help one another in the waits. Let us trust God in the waits. Let us remember the promise of deliverance while we wait. It will be worth it all. It's how the old gospel song says. Sometimes the day seems long, our trials hard to bear. We're tempted to complain, to murmur, and despair. But Christ will soon appear to catch his bride away, all tears forever over in God's eternal day. It will be worth it all when we see Jesus. Life's trials will seem so small when we see Christ. One glimpse of his dear face, all sorrow will erase. So bravely run the race till we see Christ. Anticipation can be exciting. But anticipation can also be excruciating. The groans of this world are naturally parts of anticipating the glory of a future day. So Christian, remember that groaning precedes glory. It was true for Jesus, and it is true for you. How do we know that it was true for Jesus? Well, we can read from Hebrews chapter 12, where it says, Wherefore, seeing also we are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with, what? Patience, the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint 
in your minds. Christian, don't be weary. Don't faint in your minds. You're being called to follow the same path that Jesus trod. J.B. Phillips said it this way, the whole creation is on tiptoe to see the wonderful sight of the sons of God coming into their own. Your groanings are but for a time. They are limited by the sovereign power and timing of Almighty God. Every time you bump up against the sufferings of this life, be reminded that future glory that awaits you. Patiently run the race set before you. And as C.S. Lewis said, remember this, God will make the feeblest and filthiest of us into a god or goddess, a dazzling, radiant, immortal creature, pulsating all through with such energy and joy and wisdom and love as we cannot now imagine, a bright, stainless mirror which reflects back to God perfectly, his own boundless power and delight and goodness. The process will be long and in parts very painful, but that is what we are in for, nothing less. He meant what he said. Christian, groaning precedes glory. It was true for Jesus, and it is certainly true for us. As we consider the groaning of Jesus, we come now to the Lord's table. 